standing. We'll get back up. <laughs> Sorry. If you would just turn to the book of Galatians. Chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 21 through 29. So Paul, he sort of, in his perception, he, he knows an interlocutor is going to ask a question. And so he preempts it by answering it himself. And the question is, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law is our tutor. And in the New King James and the King James, you notice that these words are italicized, which indicates that that's not in the original text. It is a tutor. And the italicized words are to bring us to Christ. We'll talk about that later, of why those words are italicized. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to promise. Lord, God... Thank you for this book of Galatians, Lord. Thank you for the way that you're teaching us and the way that you're guiding us as a people, Lord. Caleb prayed that you might open our eyes to see our need. And God, in your providence and in your wisdom, you sent the law on Mount Sinai for that very purpose, to open our eyes so that we might see our need. And so today, God, may you use the law for its original intent, and may we run and hide ourselves in Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for this body of believers and what you're doing in us. Thank you, God, what you're doing through this church, Lord. God, I pray that we will pursue you passionately. God, it will be evident that you are here and that you're a living Savior. And that, God, that we are living stones, alive in Christ, 
knitted and joined together by where every part and every joint supplies and makes the functioning of the church grow and God, that we will edify one another in love. Lord, this is your desire for your people, and we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would use this morning to guide us in that direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can, you can be seated. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> the law. Uh, I want to just first say a few words about the church. Um, I'm just amazed and blessed by this church body. And I look around and I see the different people and the different spiritual gifts and the different ministries that are taking place. And it's, it's overwhelming. And it's, um, it's a comfort, it's a joy to be a part of North Valley Bible Church and to be considered your pastor, your shepherd. It's a, a privilege. Um, I just, I can't thank you all enough. And I know I don't need to thank you. I need to thank God because God is at work in your lives and in your hearts. I have been sick all week, but I didn't have to worry about anything that was going on at the church because the body of Christ is doing the ministry. And it's, it's just amazing. I asked Dennis, you know, if he came to the youth group, and he said, yeah, I just came and watched. He just watched Mitch and another young man just do what God has called them to do and ask them to do. Um, I see, I, I get here a little bit early, and, and I see men and women putting things in the back of a pews. I see Tracy and Caleb and Brendan and Kelly up here practicing. You know, we get a, an email with a, a church newsletter. I could go on and on, and if I don't stop, I'm probably going to forget somebody, but, it, it, but it's amazing what God is doing through this church, and, and we are small, but that doesn't mean God is small. He's a big God. He's a powerful God, and I think of every life that is sitting on the pew today, that's a missionary when you leave here. You know, our, our attendance might be a little bit smaller today, but you know, we probably have 40 adults in here, 35. That's 35 missionaries that are going to leave here today with Jesus on their heart and making a difference in a lost world. Praise God. Um, so Paul has been going through the law, and he's been showing how much superior the law is. Where am I going with that? how much inferior the law is to God's promises. The law, all it could do was incite more and more transgression. It couldn't curb them. It couldn't contain them. In fact, when the law was given, it incited man, and it made sin have an opportunity just to flourish. Um. The solution isn't don't take away laws <laughs> because man is so bent towards sin that it's even going to be worse. You know, if we took the speed limit off, boy, Corey, you'd have quite a job, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, she works at Washington High School downtown, and, um, and she knows how important rules are at that school. And raising children, we know that you've got to have 
rules and you've got to have guidelines because without them, man is just going to go off the rail. And so the law isn't against the promises of God. But the law was never meant to do what the promises of God can do. The promises of God give you a new nature. The promises of God make you a new creation in Christ. The promises of God forgive every sin. The promises of God imputes complete righteousness to your account. The law could never do that. The law could only judge you and condemn you and convict you. And so Paul perceives the question, well, then is it against the promises then? And Paul answers that with an emphatic, may it never be. Old King James, God forbid. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. What the law actually does is the law enhances the promises of God. It makes the promises of God so beautiful. It causes a hunger and a thirst and a longing to be in a relationship with God. That's the purpose of the law. It's not contrary to the promises. God is doing so many things to bring people to himself. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And the law is a part of that process of bringing people. It's a tutor to bring people unto or until Christ comes. It's to make us look and long for a Savior. It looks like it is so bleak when you're under the law. And our flesh is so helpless to live a righteous and godly life. And the law brings us to that point where we say, Lord Jesus, I need your grace and I need your mercy. But God has done a lot of things to point us to himself. Paul says God has not left himself without a witness. He has set harvest and rain and seasons and good things on earth so that men would seek the Lord. God has appointed our boundaries and our predetermined limits so that men might feel after the Lord and grope for Him, though He is not far from any of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. So God in His providence over history and over man's free will, He has set some limitations on that so that men would say, okay, I need to find God. And that's a part of that is, is the law. The law is, is all that ingredient. And we've got so many things working for us to tell people about Jesus. And one of them is obviously creation. Creation is such a powerful tool to talk to people about who God is. But ultimately, we've got to bring them to the law. Because it is the law that speaks to their conscience. But creation is powerful. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is manifested 
in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that men are without excuse. That question, what about people who've never heard? They don't exist. There is no voice or language where he is not heard. Day unto day, utter speech, night unto night, knowledge. There is no speech nor language where his voice is not heard. Not only has God given us a display of his invisible attributes, by faith we understand the world was framed by the word of God so that the things that are seen were not made by the things that do appear. That escapes the atheist's question, who created God? Because we don't have to rely on a perpetual cycle that has no beginning. We have an infinite spirit God who is not matter, who lives outside of time. Where does time come from? An eternal place? It has to come from a creator who's outside of time. Where does matter come from that is decaying and always moving toward disorder? It has to come from an orderly God outside of it. Where does a conscience come from? Where does knowledge of right and wrong come from? It comes from an absolute holy being. So Paul then also talks about our conscience. Every single person is born with a conscience. John 1, 9 says that Jesus Christ is the true light that lights every single man that comes into the world. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He says, you again are without excuse, O man, whoever you are. You're inexcusable. There will be no excuse. Why? Because we see creation. Secondly, because we have a conscience. And the moment I say to someone, that is not fair. I am appealing to a moral law that I believe that that person is aware of just as well as I am. And when I say you have wronged me, I am judging myself because I do the same thing to other people. And so Paul says we are without excuse because of creation. We are without excuse with our, because of our conscience. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, he goes on to say that the Gentiles who did not have the law are a law to themselves, having the law written in their hearts, condemning or excusing themselves. So God is using all these things to bring people to the Savior. And the beauty of the law is it makes that person, when they understand the Creator, they understand the conscience, and then they give them the law, there's only one thing that they can do. And that is to fall before God and say, I need mercy. Now, there's another thing that you could do, possibly, like the lawyer did when Jesus was asked the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, of course, he's God in human flesh. So Jesus said, what does the law say? What is written? And the lawyer wisely quotes two laws. He says, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says, and then the second commandment, 
love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, wanting to use the law the way that the law was designed for, quotes Leviticus 18.5. This do and you shall live. It's impossible. So what did he try to do? He wanted to justify himself and ran down a rabbit trail and said, well, who is my neighbor after all? So the law, it enhances the promises of God. It shows us how utterly helpless we are. When you press anyone hard enough, they will agree that there is a moral, objective, and absolute standard by which men must live by. I don't care who it is. If you press them hard enough, and you take the extreme examples, I don't want to go into them, but they will concede that, yes, there are certain things that are morally objective and absolute, and they are morally wrong if you press them hard enough. The Bible concurs with this. Jesus used the law with a rich young ruler. And then he pressed him hard enough, and he says, go and sell all that you have. And the man loved his wealth and loved his riches. And he walked away from Jesus, and he walked away from salvation. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 14, Paul says this. He says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It is just, and it is good. The law is holy in the sense that it is perfect. Holy means without Sin, the law of the Lord, Psalm 19, is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than the honeycomb. That is God's perfect moral law. It is holy. It is perfect. It is just. By just, what Paul means there, it is objective. It is not subjective. The law of God is an objective standard. It's not based on opinion, and it's not based on feelings. It is just. When you stand before a judge, he is going to adjudicate whatever case is before him Hopefully with justice, not on how he feels or how his emotions. And the law is holy, it is just, it's objective. And then he says it's good. Morally excellent is the idea of that word. And by morally excellent, he means that it is absolute. Because God never changes. His law is absolute, it's objective, and it's holy, and it's good. Is that against the promises of God? No. It should throw us on the mercy of God. God's law is meant to show mankind how we have wronged Him. C.S. Lewis calls the conscience human nature or the natural law is what C.S. Lewis calls it. 
And this is what he writes. He says, when we have been wronged, we are appealing to some kind of standard of behavior that we expect the other person to live up to. He writes, when I quarrel with someone, that means I'm trying to show the other person that he or she is wrong. (laughs) When I quarrel with my wife, that's usually what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to prove to her that I'm right and she's wrong. We quarrel all the time, don't we? But it would make absolutely no sense unless we had some sort of agreement to what right and wrong are. The law makes our need for Jesus so clear. You need Christ this morning. I need Christ this morning. The world needs Christ. And the law makes this abundantly clear. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. And here's his reason why. He says, For if there had been a law given which could produce life, then righteousness would have come through the law. So life and righteousness are synonymous in that verse. So we are spiritually dead. In order to be spiritually alive, we need to be made righteous. And the law cannot make you and I righteous. It's not against it, but it forces us to admit that I need the righteousness of Christ. I've already talked about Leviticus 18.5, and Paul used it earlier in this same chapter to bring that awareness He says in verse 11, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith. And here it is, Leviticus 18, 15, But the man who does them shall live by them. So if a law could have been given, it's a contrary to fact condition in the original language. We don't use that much in English, but it's a profound way of saying you can't do something. Mary used that sort of construction when she came to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You weren't here, so he did die. There cannot be righteousness through the law. We can't live. Therefore, it's impossible to find salvation through the law. And so he's emphasizing this through this conditional sentence. But then he says the entire world system is under the control of sin. The law serves the interest in the promise to this extent. It shows us that we are hopelessly confined under sin. So let's look at verse 22, or the rest of verse 21. But the scripture, I think the old King James says, has concluded all under sin. We don't use Old English like that today, but if you look it up in Old English, it comes from a Latin word idea to conclude. It means to give all the arguments and then to shut the case. And we kind of use it in the same way in English today to come to a conclusion. You give all the arguments and then shut the case. But that's what the law does. It gives all the arguments and then it shuts the case. And we are enclosed. We're captured. This word is used two other times, one in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, and the other time is in Luke chapter 5, 
And I think that this is an interesting use of this word because it shows the idea of how sin has just captured us. It's used in Luke chapter 5 when Peter fished all night and caught nothing. And then the next day he says, cast the net. And it says that he enclosed a great school of fish. Well, that's what the law has done for you and I. It has trapped us. It has shown you and I that there's absolutely no way out. The scripture, then, he talks about here in verse 22. The scripture has confined us all under sin. So he's using the scripture here as a synonymous way of talking about God through God's voice and through God's holiness and also through the law of Moses. So the entire Old Testament revelation shows us when we look at verse 22, the word all is an adjective. It's used as a noun here, substantively. It's used to explain people. But not just people. It's not in the masculine. It's not in the feminine. Adjectives in the Greek language have also a neuter. And when it's used in the neuter, it's not talking about a gender or a person per se, but it's talking about the entire existence of man. Everything in this world is confined... It is enclosed, it is captured by the decay and the depravity of sin. And all it takes is about a five-minute news clip to realize how true that is. I don't care if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. You know, I'm not convinced that if the Republicans would be in the office, then it would be a whole lot different. Richard Nixon, he wasn't exactly a pillar of virtue, was he? I'm saying all this to say, you know, we're all enclosed under this. Disease, famines, war. It's because all of humanity, and that's what Paul is saying here when he uses the word all in the neuter, it's everything is under this. Sin has entered into our world. And through sin, death has passed to all creation. And the idea is that even creation is groaning, and crying out for the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Paul wrote this to the Romans, For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestations of the Son of God, for the creation was subjected to vanity. All of creation is, not willingly, but by reason of Him. God had a reason to subject it to vanity so that He would give them a hope. You think about why life is so frustrating sometimes. Because this is not meant to be our home, folks. Why did the plumbing break, Sister Ruiz? Because you have to depend on God. Why does the tires go flat? Because you have to depend on God. Why do people backbite and hurt your feelings? Because we live in a world that's saying you need God desperately. And God is calling out through creation. God is calling out through conscience. And he's calling out through all the frustration that we feel because we're enclosed and captured under this sin. We are waiting for the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation and groans and travail and pain until now, God, through the law, is desiring mankind to come to him and come to his senses to know that he's enclosed under the dominion of sin and to recognize the hopelessness of his predicament. You know, it's those times when you feel the most hopeless that you're probably walking the closest to God. And God is using these things to bring us to himself. All it takes is honest humility. The other time that Paul uses that word enclosed or captured or concluded is in Romans 11.32. And this is what he writes. It's a different context. But he says, for God has concluded or enclosed, encaptured them all in unbelief. I have to explain the context of Romans 11 a little bit. In order that he might have mercy on all. God wants all to come to him. And he's saying in Romans 11, the Jew has rejected their Messiah. And he's concluded them. He has judged them. He's judicially blinded them so that they can't see the Messiah anymore. Jesus taught in parables so that the Pharisees wouldn't see who he was because I'm coming, Jesus said, to bring condemnation to those who love their darkness. And he's concluded all in unbelief, and not only just the Jew, but the Gentile who's walking away from God in Romans chapter 1, so that he might have mercy on everybody. And this is the argument in Romans chapter 11. He says, the Jew now is rejecting the Messiah, And now I'm going to show mercy to all you Gentiles. And then he says, you Gentiles, I want to use you now to provoke my own people to jealousy so that they too will come back to the Messiah so that I can have mercy on everybody. That's the mystery of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now that was sort of in a nutshell a very hard passage of Scripture, but... um, If you want to ask me more about Romans 9, 10, 11, I will. But Paul concludes it with that very saying. He says, God has concluded all, Jew and Gentile, under unbelief, and God's mystery. Then he says, oh, this, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So the law encloses us, but it also imprisons us. Verse 23 But before faith came, we were kept under guard. So now he's using a different idea, and this is a warden, a prison guard. And so the law kept us in this prison house. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this, and I'll explain what I'm meaning, what Paul means here. But the, the promises, they take precedence because they were given by an oath. The law was not. The law enslaves. The law puts us in a prison house. The promises are certain because God made them unilaterally. The law was conditional that we had to obey it in order to find the blessings and to live by it. So all it did was put us in a prison house. 
the law also served as a parenthesis. Look at verse 23. So before faith came, he's talking about the gospel here. We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would be revealed later. So the law was this parenthesis. God gave the promise to Abraham about 2000 B.C. I'm going to talk in sort of generalities. And then in 1400 B.C., the law of Moses. And then at the year of Christ, we now have faith come. And so this parenthesis, it was sort of a a prison guard because God was saying, you need something to guard you and protect you as my people. And these laws are to be your wisdom, they're to be your understanding, they're to be your testimony to all the other nations around you that I am a holy and just and righteous God. Without that, Israel would have failed miserably. Most importantly, the law served as a warden to keep all mankind looking for the promise. You were never saved by the law in the Old Testament, ever. We were always saved by faith. And what the law did, it made those people in the Old Testament look that much more for the coming of the Messiah. They longed for the days of Jesus. Jesus said, many prophets, many teachers long to hear what you're hearing and to see what you're hearing. Blessed are your ears. Blessed are your eyes. For you are here from the to- at, the, at the time of the Messiah. So the, faith, the law was never meant to save It was always meant to show man's desperate need. It's only when we realize how sin controls us that we earnestly seek a Savior. When you understand how it controls you and how there's this war in your members, as Caleb and I were talking earlier this week, that's when you run to Jesus It doesn't take very long for you to realize that you're a sinner, does it? But it should force us to come to Christ. It would force us to come to Him. The law really incites sin. To be under law is, in a sense, to be under sin because the law can't control it. It's the legalist who judges others, the one who puts all these extra-biblical regulations on people. He is the one who judges others, but he is often himself or herself most controlled by sin. It is because the law, while forbidding sin, actually stimulates the very thing it forbids. I was... My mind is kind of weird. You all know that, but... um, I grew up, didn't grow up, but I, I pastored a church that was very legalistic. And Caleb, he said something to me this morning. He said, you know, I've been accused of being a legalist. And I looked up here, and he was playing his guitar in his bare feet. <laughs> if that man is a legalist, then we don't know what that means. Because Tracy and I, we remember, we had a, an organ player. And one Sunday night, he came with a pair of penny loafers on, and he didn't have on a pair of socks. And I had to meet with the deacons afterward to talk to this man because he didn't have a pair of socks on. Now, that's a legalist. 
And all they did was look around and find fault in everybody, and they were the most miserable and they were the most sinful people I know because they're always pointing and always judging and always accusing. That's what a legalist is, and that's what the law does. It just incites more sinful behavior. The law was our guardian. He uses the word tutor. The Greek word is pediagogos. I wish Dr. Sue was here today because she would enjoy this little bit because we talk about pedagogy in school as we teach people. We get it from the Greek word, pedagogos, but it has a little bit different meaning today. In today's English, it means a method or a practice of teaching. So in the sense, the law is a method, is a practice of laying out principles so that a student and a pupil could understand something. That's what the law does. But this Greek word used technically referred to a slave attendant that lived in a house. His job was to take a freeborn child to school. His duty was to teach that child manners, what it was like to be responsible with your finances, what it was to be a good steward with your time. That's what the pedagogist did because that little boy didn't understand those things. And that's what Paul is saying that the law is like. You need the law only when you're immature. When you are walking in the Holy Spirit and you are in love with Jesus, you don't need that slave attendant to drag you around to make sure you're crossing your I's and dotting your T's. (laughs) In order that we might be justified by faith. That's what the law was pointing to. With the coming of Christ, the promise has been completely fulfilled. Look at what it does for us in verse 26. We have a complete new relationship, don't we? We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This morning, you and I are a family because of faith in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful what he's writing here. And this was so radical in the century that Paul was writing this. And especially from a Jew that had been brought up in the school of Hillel, the Pharisee branch, because Paul was taught as a child to pray this. I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I'm not a slave. And I thank you, God, that I'm not a woman. That's pretty awful, isn't it? But that's the way he was taught to pray. And now he says, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, where there is neither Jew or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. All those barriers, all those biases, all those prejudices have been destroyed in Christ Jesus. When he says here, 
in verse 26. Well, never mind. I'll, 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 I'll skip that. <laughs> but I, I just want to, I want to point out just a little phrase that's so often used in the New Testament. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Christ is the Son of God par excellent. He is the elect chosen one par excellent. He is the chosen stone. He is the chosen Son of God. And it's when we are in Christ, then we are incorporated into his elect people. It's when we are in Christ is when we become a part of the family of God. And so it's all found in Christ. This is a New Testament technical term that defines the corporate body being incorporated. Believers are in Christ. We are united with him and we are united with one another. We are incorporated to him, and as he is God's son inherently, so we become his son through adoption. And then verse 27 explains this. For explains how we are in Christ and we're sons of God, and so he uses something that these Gentile believers would have understood. They left their Gentile faith either by conversion to Judaism prior to the gospel, or after they left paganism, in both instances, they were baptized. So Paul is using here, and I don't think he's using a spiritual baptism. I think he is talking about water baptism. And that's not just my opinion. I, I looked up a lot of different authorities, and one is a guy named F.F. Bruce, who is probably the leading scholar of the New Testament. And this is what he writes about this baptism. He said, it is difficult to suppose that the readers would not have understood this as a statement about their own initiatory rite of baptism, whereby they publicly demonstrated their allegiance and union with Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ. Now, so this is, this is physical water baptism here, I think he's talking about. But then he uses a synonym to describe what that symbolically represents. Baptism doesn't save anybody. And I don't have time to, to defend all that, but I'll just give you one argument. Paul was not sent to preach Paul was sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Okay, so the gospel and baptism are separate things. Cornelius' household, another argument. Baptism doesn't save. Cornelius' household, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They are regenerated. They're alive in Christ. He knows that they're alive in Christ because he's a Jew, and they are speaking in tongues, languages, just like he received at the day of Pentecost. He turns around to his Jewish friends. He says, who can forbid water? that these should not be baptized, who have, past tense, received the Holy Spirit just like we did. So they're already saved. So baptism is not a means of salvation, but baptism is a public demonstration that I have been immersed into Jesus. I am buried spiritually with Christ. My sin has been forgiven. I'm raised with Jesus Christ in union with him to walk in the newness of life. 
And so baptism is an important statement to the world and to the community of other believers that I am a part of this group. I am with you. And when you make that public statement, Paul says, this is what's happened spiritually. You have, past tense, completed act, you have put on Christ. So what does it mean to put on Christ? It means, first of all, to put on Christ means I have died to sin. To put on Christ means I have now a new man that I can clothe myself To put on Christ means I walk in the power of spiritual transformation. And to put on Christ means now I have a badge and a pledge to live for Jesus. The spiritual blessings are found only in Christ. 28 through 29. There's neither Jew, there's neither Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise complete and genuine unity. The breakdown of all barriers is an essential part and power of the gospel. Every extreme that you can imagine, Paul lists right here. He wrote the Corinthians. He says, if you are a slave, when you come to Jesus Christ, your status has been completely changed. You are Christ's freed man. And if you are free and you come to Christ, your status has become completely changed. You are now the slave of Christ. The one who is last is first, and the one who is first is last, and God is bringing them together. Jew, who did not allow Gentiles to come into the temple and had a separate area for them, He has torn down middle walls of barriers in Christ Jesus. And women who were not allowed to hold any priesthood office in the Old Testament now are viewed as priests before God. A woman has direct access to God just as much as any other man. A woman has the Holy Spirit and is taught by God just as much as any other man. That is the power of the gospel. The wonderful, wonderful news. What the law could not do, God does through this promise. I want to read one passage before I close. It kind of sums up this whole process of the new covenant. It's found in Hebrews chapter 8. And he's saying what the covenant could not do, God's promises did for us. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place to seek a second. Because finding fault with it, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not according to the covenant that I made with them with their fathers when they took them by the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And this is what the promise does. And this is what we inherit. And the law forces us to come to Christ for these things. 
I will put my laws in their mind. This is what God wants to do for you and I through the promise. And the law forces us to come to Christ and say, yes, I need you. The law says, I'm going to judge you. The new covenant says, I'm going to write the law in your mind. I will write it on the tablet of your heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor, saying, know the Lord. For you will know me, the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So the law is not against the promises of God. The law enhances the beautiful, beautiful promises of God. It encloses us under sin. The whole world is captured in this fallen world that we have to run to Christ for. It's our guardian that keeps us under check and under key. It was a parental parenthesis system. It was a pedagogus that guided us and took us to school, made sure we did our homework, made sure we brushed our teeth at night, made sure we did all of our chores. But under Christ and under the promises, you don't need any of that. God has written it on your heart. He's put it in your mind. And as your pastor and as your shepherd, all I have to do is remind you. I don't have to run around and be the spiritual police dog because we don't have to run around and say, neighbor, do you know the law? No, God has shown it to you and he's written it in your heart. And that's the beauty that the law points us to. Father, Lord God, thank you so much for all the things that you use to bring us to yourself. But most importantly, God, the conviction that the law brings. It encloses us that I'm under sin. The law guards me and keeps me. It's a temporary school attendant because I don't know how to do what is right or wrong without you living in my heart. God, today as we take the bread of this new covenant, may we be reminded that this is what we are celebrating. When Jesus broke this bread, he said, this is the bread of the new covenant which is given for you. That a part of that covenant is that we would receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that we would no longer be a slave to sin, we would no longer be under the dominion of sin, and we would no longer be incited to sin. But God, we would desire to live and worship you in a relationship of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.